It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. My guest today is Esther Dufflow, Professor of Poverty Alleviation and Development Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and winner of the 2019 Nobel Prize for Economics, the youngest person and second woman to ever receive this award. Now, we've had some pretty prestigious academics on the podcast before, but never a Nobel laureate. So I'm going to have to ask, what was it like to get that phone call? Can you talk us through that moment? For someone who is in sitting in North America, it's usually a destabilizing moment because it happens in the middle of the night. <laughs> and so since they're calling from Sweden around 10 a.m. their time, turns out to be 4 a.m. for our time. So obviously I was sleeping and it was not in my frame of reference at all. So it was a big surprise. They, they called me and say, there's an important call from Sweden. And I was like, what? What's like, what could be an important call from Sweden? When you get a phone call in the middle of the night with parents in Europe, your first reaction is something's happened to the parents. So that was so obviously I pick up the phone. That important call from Sweden. And then I was like, I don't have relatives in Sweden. So that's good news. And then we are calling to tell you that you won the Nobel Prize. And my reaction was like, with whom? Because of course, my, my husband is working with me and doing very similar work. And so I wanted, I wanted to make sure that he was involved with Michael Kramer and Abhijit Banerjee. I was like, oh, that's great. You want to talk to Abhijit? He's right there. <laughs> and I gave him, gave him the phone call. And then uh, they said, uh, you have to do a press conference in, in two hours. So you should uh, get a shower, get some tea and get ready for a press conference. And you, meaning me, you have to do it because it has to be the woman in the group. So my husband tells me, it's great. I'm going back to sleep. I'm saying, we just won the Nobel Prize. He said, yes, but it's going to be a long day. <laughs> so he went back to sleep and I got up and I got a shower and got some tea and got ready for my press conference. And of course, you did win the Nobel Prize with your husband and with a male researcher who had worked with you. Can you tell us a bit, maybe not so much at the Nobel Prize moment, but when you were doing the work together and you were presenting as a research team, were there times when people reacted to the men in the group differently to you, when they looked at a research team of one woman and two men and kind of assumed that the men were in the lead? It's an interesting question. You have to add to that that they are both older than me and they are the pioneer of the field. So in some sense, to be perfectly fair, they are in the lead. In the sense, they are the one who really had launched this agenda. And then I joined them like quickly after. And then, you know, I also contributed to it, but uh, I contributed to that agenda that both of them really put together. However, you have to 
keep in mind that the reverse of uh, gender discrimination is, is tokenism. And when you have very few women in the field, and economics is a field with very few women, then the few women that there are are actually in very high demand because everybody wants to display that they are not discriminating. So if anything, I think in my career, I've been the beneficiary of that, which is I've sometimes attracted credit that wasn't really mine rightfully or that should have been shared more widely because I am the woman and it's so convenient to, to have a woman. <laughs> so if anything, I've seen the, the opposite. And also within economics, which is generally male-dominated, development economics is not. So development economics, which is the study of poor countries and poor people, is actually quite gender diversified. We run a lab called the Jamil Poverty Action Lab where almost all the top leadership, both at the global level and at the country level, are women. So we run a field which is full of strong, energetic women. So people are pretty used to see women, I think, in our part of the profession. I would have experienced much more of what you described in other subfields. And why do you think development economics, the study of poverty in poorer countries and what can be done to change that, why do you think that disproportionately includes women, whereas other fields of economics do not? I think because most women, when if and when they decide to do economics, it's, it's because they, they want to change the world. Probably not out of our innate nature as women, but more because of the education that girls receive and boys receive. Women tend to be developed first girls and then young women tend to develop a more altruistic, caring nature of their personalities. I am convinced boys could develop it too, and some do, but this is more socially encouraged to do so for women. So when young women decide their field of study, I think many are not attracted by economics because they see it as a study of macro and interest rate and power, and they don't want to do that. And the ones who do come into economics are the ones who want to go into public policy, work on you know, how to improve the lot of people either in their countries or in developing countries. And so that's why within economics, you find women in, in development, you find women in public finance, you find women in labor economics, and you do not find them in macroeconomics or in theory. That's interesting. Now I want to take you back to the beginning. You grew up in Paris in the 1970s as the daughter of a mathematics professor father and a mother who, on top of being a paediatrician, also worked at a non-government organisation helping children who were the victims of war. What was it like growing up with such impressive role models, including the role model from your mother, and how do you think that influenced you? Well, I think I had a hugely privileged childhood, not in the sense that we were hugely wealthy, but in the sense that I got uh, exposed to culture and science, and also a strong sense of altruism and new responsibility in the world from a, from a very early age. And once you have that, then, you know, it stays with you. The one way in which it stayed with me from the very beginning is that because my mother was spending times in countries which were uh, ravaged by civil war or by wars, she would come back and show us photos and do little, uh, you know, slideshows of what she had seen. You know, as long as I, as I can remember, but at least from the age of eight or nine, I felt very bothered and unhappy about the wedge between my childhood 
and the childhood of someone who lives where my mother was going, El Salvador or uh, Madagascar or uh, the occupied Morocco, occupied Sahara. And I felt, you know, I have such a good life. What responsibility does that give me? And so I think it's perhaps that that was the defining feature of what I was trying to become. And for, for a long time, I, I did not know where this was taking me. And it was only around the age of 20 that I discovered economics as a possible solution to this problem. But it was always with me as a problem that somehow the privilege that I was born with, with that came the responsibility of doing something useful with my life. And what role did gender and gender stereotyping play in your upbringing? When was the first moment that you can recall thinking to yourself that I'm being treated differently because I'm a girl? You know, at least some version of it forever, which is I always wanted to be a boy. (laughs) I don't want to say I was gender fluid because I knew I was a girl, but I really regretted not being a boy. From the age of about five, when I can remember this, to again about maybe 16 or 17, I was just so upset that I was not born a boy. And I remember my parents explaining to me, but why? You can do whatever you want. And I still felt, no, no, <laughs> if only I was a boy, there is, it would be so much better. From time to time, I tried to think about that and say, but why did I want to be a boy so much? And I think it's about, it was a reaction to this stereotype. I remember going to a Christmas party for my, my father's work and they gave engineering kits to boys and dolls to girls. And I was like, I don't want a doll. <laughs> I, don't, I want an engineering kit. <laughs> so I think that's, a, you know, this kind of sums it up. It's like I was just offended by the stereotypes. And at some level and from always, I was offended by a stereotype. And from even though being born in France, is not, it's not nearly as bad as what they would have been if I had been born in India, but they were still present, not in my family, which kept saying, you can do what you want, etc. But I could perceive them. I just didn't like to be boxed by that. That's really interesting that you felt it so strongly so early on. I want to fast forward now to your time at university in the 1990s. You weren't doing economics as your degree originally. You actually started out studying history. So what was that moment of inspiration that made you say to yourself, economics, economics is my thing? So I had always wanted to study history for some reason. I always felt that, uh, you know, my father was an academic and I felt I was also going to be an academic and I loved history. So I always thought I would be a historian, maybe from the age of eight again, I decided I would be a historian. But remember, I had that other thing in my mind, which was on the back of my mind, I had this, this worry that what am I going to do to justify my luck? For a long time, these two thoughts didn't meet together. I was continuing my studies to become a historian and, you know, being a diligent, good student. And on the other hand, I was trying to help in various NGOs, citizen movements, etc. But it was not entirely satisfying. And France has a system where you work very, very, very hard right after high school to go into competitive schools. And then after that, you're a little bit set for life. Once I had finished those exams, I could finally think, okay, now what, what it is I'm going to do? I used to feel uncomfortable because I was privileged. Now I am really privileged. <laughs> now I am like at the top of the French uh, academic uh, ladder. What am I going to do? Am I going to be a history professor? Like, really? And so I thought I have to do something else. I have to try something else. 
Epictic economics, thinking that suppose it doesn't work out, at least it's going to be useful for history, so it's not a waste of time. So it was not a very like deep decision to go into economics, and in fact, I hated it. And my first years of economics, I found that completely pointless to to try to you know write down equations and graphs and to 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 summarize how people think. I thought it was completely the wrong way to go about it. I guess the way I was taught economics early on, it was not really explained very well that there is a connection to the things that I was really caring about. So I didn't know that. And I was all set to give up economics, but again, not being very happy with what I was doing with my life in terms of its usefulness. I thought that I would uh, take a year off and travel the world. And then during that time, think about what I want to do and maybe become a politician or prepare to, to work in the real world. I got this plan. I'm going to go to Russia for a year. I used to speak Russian. I'm going to use that time to think like my next step, but I was kind of all set to go into policymaking. And then in Russia, because of my economics background, I, I was able to work as a research assistant of uh, teams of economists in Russia. And there, my eyes totally opened to how powerful economists are. This was a time where Russia was transitioning and these economists who frankly, didn't know very much because nobody knew, found themselves like redoing everything about Russia, <laughs> privatizing here. And, you know, and the degree of influence that they had was really mind boggling. So I felt two things. I felt on one hand, look, if I do economics, I can be really influential and change policy. On the other hand, I better have to learn it very well <laughs> and try to understand some part of it as well as I can, because that influence could otherwise be quite dangerous. And so that's when this moment in Russia, everything came together, because I felt I can be an academic, and yet I can be an academic that has influence on the world, and in particular on the question of poverty, which was still the foremost question in my mind. So that's kind of when I decided to switch to economics. I had already done a bit of it, but that's when my heart came to it. You have referred to the culture in economics as macho, even locker room. Is that how you experienced it? Was that something that you felt during the study of economics or you felt during the practice of economics? And is it getting better or getting worse? So remember that I always wanted to be a boy. I think what is as left with me is I'm very thick skin. I don't care really. I don't mind. Nothing of that kind troubles me. And I am actually, frankly, oblivious to uh, sexism. Plus, I had the chance to come to MIT, which is a very gentle culture. Within economics, is kind of known to be the, the place where the culture is the most gentle and friendly and all that. So as a result of these two things combined, no, not at all. There were very few women in my program. I think about only six women in my cohort. But uh, the, the entire program was very friendly. And then I started doing development economics, which had women, <laughs> where I found other women, and where the men that select into this field tend to be the gentle one as well. So my whole experience was very uh, mellow from the beginning and, and very pleasant. At some level, I didn't even realize that uh, this locker room culture was an issue until I finished graduate school. And I started traveling to other departments and gathered the experience of others in the field. In some sense, I think I was a bit oblivious to it and to its importance also. And I was not alone there. 
I think the entire field was a bit oblivious to it for the longest time. And therefore, nothing was done about it for the longest time. In contrast to the STEM fields, where about 10 years or 15 years ago, they realized that they had a real problem in terms of gender balance and that it had probably something to do with how they treated women. And they really tried and I think to some extent succeeded in attracting and keeping more women. In economics, we just about started a few years ago because the entire field, a bit at the same time as me, we kind of came aware that we had an issue and that the way that seminars, for example, were operating, the kind of aggressivity in the air in a lot of departments was off-putting to too many women. And also the image that we projected as being a profession of power and influence, as opposed to be a profession that also cares about topics like world poverty and public policy, was another factor that was of putting. So I think things are improving. I don't think they have improved enough, but I think they are definitely improving because, you know, little steps are taken. And in this topic, like in many others, it's through a combination of little steps that you end up making progress. And what role do you think the sort of 2018 reckoning in economics as part of the Me Too movement played in all of this? There was a time when there were many stories being told about sexism and misogyny in economics. Do you think that that's been part of what spurred this movement for change? Yes, I think the Me Too movement definitely played a role in uh, encouraging economists to also look a little bit inward. Another thing is the the sense that developed in the profession that many people who are active in the profession were unhappy, that the atmosphere was not very good, and in particular was not very good for younger people, women and men, students, uh, assistant professors, and particularly difficult for young women. I don't know whether it would have happened in economics without Me Too. I think Me Too forced an acceleration of the reckoning because there was certainly media attention that wasn't there before. And a few isolated events were particularly uh, visible in the media and that forced like a discussion. I want to believe that that discussion would have happened anyway because we would have felt the pressure that we are a social science. We need diversity. We have no diversity. We are a completely white male-dominated field, quantitatively. But a social science needs a diversity of perspective. It needs women. It also needs minority. And our minority problem is even worse, much worse than our women problem, both in the numbers and also in the way that minorities are treated. So we have very, very few uh, black uh, economists. And frankly, that's a disaster for the field. Because that affects the topic that people are talking about, that affects the way that they're thinking about these topics, and that affects the whole, you know, value and richness of our field. So the question of diversity, of racial diversity, similarly was completely absent of every conversation and similarly came to the front during the Black Lives Matter movement. So in quick succession, we had Me Too that brought the question of women. And then the Black Lives Matter that brought the question of minorities and in particular black for the U.S. And I do hope and actually strongly believe that the profession will come stronger for it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We could talk all day about your research, which is incredibly wide-ranging, but I do want to focus on one area, and that's the area of female leadership and female empowerment in India where you did some experiments into perceptions of female political leaders. Can you talk us through that research and what drew you to that field in particular? Yes. So one thing that I also uh, was upset against as a kid, even though I was upset against stereotypes, I hated them, I also was upset about anything looking like special accommodation for girls. So I just hated the fact that girls had to do sewing and, and boys something else. But I also hated the idea that there would be quotas or uh, reserved seats for women. I was like, we can compete and we can outdo the boys and there is no reason to give a special uh, favor. I remember a discussion with my father when th- there used to be in that elite school I went to, a girl track and a boy track. And they eliminated the girl track. And when they did that, a woman all but disappeared. All of the seats were taken by boys, in particular in science. And my father is a mathematician, and we had a discussion, and he was really sad, and he was really upset. And he said, this is a really big problem for the field. And I was like, why? They are not good enough. They should work harder and be good enough. There is no reason girls couldn't, cannot do as well in math. And he, he told me, no, it's not the way it works. Women can be excellent mathematicians, and we need them in the field. And they think differently, they think on different problems, etc. But the way that they are educated, etc., make them less able to take those exams. We lose them at the level of the exam, of the competitive exam, because they are not used to compete or they, they are not trained to value competition. But in fact, we need them in the field. And this stayed with me as a question, not as something that I was convinced by, but as a question. And I always wanted to study the role of these policies. You know, is it the case that, in fact, when you have a special reservation for women, does it improve the situation for everyone else? And if so, then how come people don't come around to realize that they also need to make in place systems that are going to encourage the race of women as leaders, like yourself, for example? So I look at various aspects of that. And then in India, they had this policy where one third of the villages in every election had to select a woman as mayor. And they decided that these villages needed to be randomly selected. The reason was otherwise the woman was given the, like the worst village, the most remote place. And so they didn't want that. So they decided, fine, every election we organize a lottery. One third of villages selected, only women can run there. And I thought this was a beautiful opportunity to look at what they do. And what was interesting is that at the beginning of the research, which I did with, uh, in West Bengal with a Bengali professor called Raghav Chattopadhyay, our field team was very convinced that the women were useless. They said there is no reason to do this study. In any case, they are the puppets of their husbands. They are not doing anything, so you're not going to find any difference. I said, sure, 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 let's do it anyways. And we... Uh, first collected data to see whether they act differently. And we found that they invest in very different things. In particular, they invested much more in drinking water because this was the preference of women. But in general, they were also more responsive to the preferences of people in the village than men, and particular women. So that was interesting. 
that women are more able than men to carry out the preferences of women. And therefore, it's important to have women in politics because otherwise the interests of women are never taken into account. And that started to move me to in the direction of thinking maybe quotas are not that bad. And then I, I was wondering about whether there is a more effect of having women. And in particular, what happened when you already had a woman? For example, people like our field team, would they be convinced by seeing a woman in politics? So what we did with several uh, co-authors' friends is we interviewed villagers about their opinion about female and male leaders. For example, we recorded a speech by female and male actors. We had people listen to the speech, either by the female voice or the main voice. Same speech. And we asked, what do you think of this leader? Would you vote for them? What do you think of their quality as leader? In general, when the speech is given by a male, people give a higher rating. So that showed that there was very strong discrimination. But in places which had had a woman as leader, that difference entirely disappeared. So people actually learn from their experience with one woman, even one cycle, that women can be good leader. However, the one person they had already, like the trailblazer, they kicked out in the next election. But more women entered and more women were elected at various levels in policies where they had been one of these trailblazers. The trailblazer paid the cost of being the trailblazer politically, but a whole generation of women was born as a result. So that really made me much more in favor of preservation than I was before, because I was like, yes, the women are good politicians, but people don't know it, and they need to experience it to believe it. And by having quotas, especially these rotating quotas, you force it. And then we wrote the next paper, which is to look at whether having a woman as leader serves as a role model for, in general, for parents vis-à-vis -vis their daughters. So we interviewed teenagers and their parents about their career and their ambition. And we found that having a female leader closes the gap between the ambition that people have for their daughters versus their boys. And it is so powerful that it also increases the chance that they send them to middle school, which means that thanks to having a female leader, even though the female leader has nothing to do with the school directly, this is above her pay grade, just the presence of the female leader makes parents send their girls to school and catch up with the boys. So in this, you learn the, the role of role models, the importance of role models, the importance of lived experience to change discrimination. And therefore makes me also optimistic that things can be changed, but it needs to be a little bit jump-started. I love it. <laughs> it's just such a fantastic piece of research in every sense, the sort of randomised control nature of it to give you the very clear comparisons. It's fantastic. Now, living as we have been and continue to be in the era of the pandemic, what have you made of the dialogue about women leading better during the pandemic? And based on your research, what do you think the world needs to do next? Obviously, in many public policy circles, people are now talking about how we build back from the pandemic. What do you think we need to do? Given my research, and in particular all this work on female leaders, I'm inclined to believe that women are in general better leaders than men, political leaders. And indeed, in the pandemic, we saw very many very effective female leaders including all of the ones that are familiar to you, like Jacinda Ardern, but also, for example, the health minister of Kerala, who is a very powerful woman. And in Kerala was really 
attacked by the pandemic in terms of number of cases, but they had very, very, very few deaths because she was really able to, or the state, but under our leadership, was able to really, really organize the healthcare system to help them, to, to help people out. So we have many examples of very successful female leaders. That said, I don't know if we can conclude from the pandemic and from this example that this is because they are women that they did better. Because another thing happened, which is it's also different places that choose to elect female leader. And it's not an accident that you have a powerful female leader in Kerala compared to other parts of India, because in general, Kerala is a state in India which has had the most gender balance and uh, the most progressive uh, gender policy. So did they do well on COVID because they had a female leader? Or did they elect a female leader because there are type of places that would uh, elect a female leader? And the same questions can be asked about Finland or about New Zealand or about, uh, or about uh, Germany. And after all, Australia also did well in the pandemic. So I don't know. And I don't think we'll find out from just looking at the pandemic. But we don't need to, in a sense, because we know it from other, we know it from other circumstances. We know it from the Indian cases. And we do know from the pandemic at least that women are at least as good. And that regardless of whether they were the cause for the better performance or they were just a part of the package that led to the better performance, the truth is that they will still be role models and things that people will be able to, to look up to, young women will be able to look up to and young men will be able to look up to and therefore will, I hope, you know, generate again the same effect that we're seeing in, in West Bengal, which is you have some trailblazer and then, you know, people come in the footstep of that. And the pandemic might accelerate that regardless of whether their gender was the reason they did well. I'm not going to begrudge it. It's good anyways, because it will be a good thing to have more women in politics. And again, it would be a good thing if women were not better by construction, just because you need diversity. Because politicians are men and women. They are not algorithms that implement the will of the people. As you would know, I'm sure from your own experience, they govern with their own heart and their own preference and their own desire and their own lived-in experience. We know that from many, many research. So who they are, including their gender, will affect what they focus on, what is important. So in the same way that economics needs to be diverse, politics also needs to be diverse. It needs to have women and needs to have men. But men seems to be there are plenty. So it's more important to focus on, the, on, on being sure that they are women. Men, there are plenty. That's true in politics, absolutely, and in so many other fields. I'm going to turn now to the form of questions we use to conclude every interview. I always ask my guest about a fact. The fact for you actually comes from your book, Good Economics for Hard Times, so it's going to be very familiar to you. You argue in that book that attempts to end climate change cannot be separated from the fight against economic inequality. And we know that women feel this inequality most acutely. When the worst effects of climate change make land-based work impossible, women are often less able than men to turn to other forms of work. So my fact for you is that nine in 10 countries worldwide have laws impeding women's economic opportunities. For example, laws that bar women from factory jobs, working at night, 
or getting a job without permission from their husband. What role do you think economics has in addressing this urgent issue about economic freedom? Let me complete the fact, in a sense, which is 9 out of 10 countries worldwide have laws against participation of women in the labour market, and 10 out of 10 have some social norms that also prevent it at some level. In all countries, uh, for example, we saw it very clearly in the pandemic, is that if they, you know, there was a need to, to have more labor at home because the children were not taken care of by schools anymore and it's the woman who, for, on whom this burden fell. Also, when there is a need to share work, like there are not enough, most people will reply to you in, in questionnaire that if one person has to sacrifice their career, it has to be the woman. So on top of this legal restriction, there are also the social norm restrictions. Economics has a lot to say about that, both about the cost to society of not having women working and also about how to fight it and what can be done to encourage uh, and facilitate the participation of women in the, in the labor market. And there is, in fact, a very active field of research on women in the labor market that studies these various aspects. I'll give you just one example where you might not necessarily expect an economics paper. It is work by Leonardo Bochstein and David Yanakizawa-Droth on Saudi Arabia, where there are both restrictions to women's mobility and strong social norms against women working. They did a study with young men where they asked them whether they would uh, be favorably inclined to have their women, their wives work outside of the home. They also asked them whether they felt that other people in that same room what their opinion were. And what they found is that people are more liberal than what they think other people are. So a majority of people would be okay to have their wife working outside the house, but a vast majority of people thought that other people would not be okay. So then they did a very simple experiment. To half of them, they told them, oh, by the way, you think, do you know that most of your friends think the same as you? And then they just waited and see. And they found that uh, they gave people opportunity to sign up for jobs. They gave people opportunity to apply for a job that you could either do from home or from a back office uh, center. And they found that the people who had been received the social norm intervention were more likely to let their wives work. So this is a, a good moment to say that economics is, as a profession is not just about uh, to think that you might think are hardcore economics, it's also about the interplay between a society and economics outcome and also about how to change things sometimes. Yes, to change behaviours and views. That's fascinating. Now, a more personal question. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? Maybe this is the reaction to that, to the paper on female as policymakers. So I was not the subject of the misogyny, but this woman were which is whenever I presented this paper, particularly in India, but also in other places, someone always said, after I had presented the result, it can't be true because I've seen this woman. They are just figurehead. They're not really doing the work. And I'm like, dude, I just showed you. You know, I just showed you that they do different things and that people take notice. Can't you, like, listen? But the strength of the misogyny is so strong that uh, people will take their theory against the, the fact that it's being presented to them. So that, that might be the example that just that irritated me the, the most. 
can understand why you were irritated by that. If you had all the power in the world for, you know, a moment, what would you change for women? There are still vast differences in the world in infant mortality and child mortality and maternal mortality. And these differences are really morally uh, unacceptable because they are things that they are usually both for, for women giving birth and for very young children, things that are preventable or treatable. So if I had all the power in the world, and it wouldn't even take God's like power, I think it would get take a good international collaboration and very strong leaders, I would make those differences disappear. That's a fantastic vision. Virginia Woolf says, we can best help you to prevent war, not by repeating your words and following your methods, but by finding new words and creating new methods. Esther Dufflow says... I'll take her, her word. I think in a sense, what we are trying to do, what I'm trying to do in my work is by creating new methods, developing new methods to find out what works and what doesn't work in the fight against poverty. I could almost take that particular sentence as my, my own motto. What has really driven me in my work is you can take one fight at a time, one little fight at a time, and apply to it like all the rigor and all the training and all the passion that you have and really make progress. And for that, you might need to have to invent new words and new methods. And if you do that and do it and do it again, when you turn back after 10 or 20 years, you would have made a difference. Absolutely. And I'm sure many are going to love those words, but I know particularly the researchers at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership are. Thank you so much. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the conversation. Wonderful. Podcast of One's Own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you.